I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, hey, welcome to Page Break. I'm your host, Brian McClellan, coming to you on a gorgeous spring weekend in the high desert mountains of Utah. A quick reminder that as of release of this episode, we are just six weeks away from the launch of my new epic fantasy, In the Shadow of Lightning. Pre-orders are a huge part of the ultimate success of a book, so if you're planning to pick it up and can do so early, I'd be very grateful if you did. Another note, this conversation was recorded right at the beginning of the war in Ukraine, which we touch upon briefly during our discussion of Catherine's books. I just want to make it extra clear that Catherine and I both support Ukraine in their defensive struggle. Now, on with the show. My guest this week is novelist Catherine Arden. Catherine is known for her Russian-inspired historical fantasy, The Winter Night Trilogy, which begins with The Bear and the Nightingale, and for her middle-grade series, Small Spaces. Catherine and I chat about her life before getting published, and her extensive world travels, as well as skiing, gardening, and what can make or break historical fiction. Enjoy my conversation with Catherine Arden. So this is going to sound a little bit funny, but uh, one of the first things that struck me when I uh, jumped on your Wikipedia article was, um, oh, somebody who's actually my age. Like, (laughs) (laughs) it always feels like all of my writer friends are either the young upcoming punks that are, you know, young and awesome and glamorous, um, or they're, you know, like 40 or over. And as somebody in your mid 30s, it's like, I don't feel like I come across other authors that are that age very often. I mean, I feel like they exist. Although I do feel like I do feel like the young punks often get a lot of attention, and so do like the old like stalwarts, or maybe just like us thirty year olds like have to choose a group. Like, am I a young punk or am I an old stalwart? And they kind of subdivided naturally. Right. It's hard to know. Yeah. I, it's hard to know. When did you start? You started. Uh, 2013 was my first book. Okay, mine was in 17. Yeah. So. Yeah. So that's not too far apart. But you you started writing your first book pretty early, right? Yeah, I started my first book um, the summer of 2011. So it was a pretty long, um, it was actually finished the next year, but there was a long kind of like slow trip to publication. Um, did you, was yours, how old were you when your first book came out then? Um, oh gosh, I never remember. So it was, it came out in- It must have been like 25, 24? Yeah, I think I was 26, maybe. So I was okay. born in 86. So whatever the math is on that. So I guess I would have been 26 or 27. Um, All right. I was I was born in 87. My first book was in 17. So I was, I was 27 when it came out. Yeah. Yeah. So, so we're book, but we're like book age buddies. That's true. We're in the same age range, the same cohort, <laughs> for sure. Right. Oh, that's funny. Um, something that... Uh, I, I found funny just kind of looking at kind of the life that you led before becoming published mm-hmm. was how kind of marked by what, at least to me, from, you know, somebody who doesn't really know you, because you know, this is the first time we've met, uh, it seemed very marked by wanderlust. 
Um, and I, I thought that was kind of interesting. And I was curious if you feel that way. Um, I mean, definitely. I, I, I did and still do have a lot of wanderlust. I, um, I spent a year out of high school in France when I was a teenager and got kind of the taste for it. And they spent a year um, at a at an institute in Moscow, a Russian language institute, um, when I was 19. Um, and then I, I went to college in the States, in Vermont, and then afterwards moved to Hawaii, where I, where I started there in the Nightingale in that summer of 2011, and lived for a couple of years. And then I, I taught English in France for a year. Um, and then when I sold... I then moved back to Hawaii. And then when I sold um, my first my first trilogy, the, the Winter Night trilogy... I ended up traveling, um, just kind of footloose, um, for, for a while, I feel like six, eight months. And then I, um, sort of wound up back in Vermont, um, where I met my now partner and, and live, but, um, definitely got into the habit of doing these big kind of like walkabouts every spring when Vermont is, um, Vermont is terrible <laughs> in April. Yeah, <laughs> April April is the month of, of death in Vermont. Um, so I would do these you know long walkabouts then, and I I've, I did it up until COVID. So I I have missed the wandering um, the last couple of years. I poke at it because I kind of grew up and and still kind of feel and and still this way in terms of just absolutely terrified of things that are out of my comfort zone. And I'm, I always am incredibly impressed and super jealous of people who are just able to go somewhere without like, I don't know, without that just destroying who they are. Like I've lived in two places in my life and, and I feel like such a less of a person for it. I mean, I think that's, I think the sort of Instagram glorification of like, I got to go to X place and get the really good shot in front of the tulips, you know, kind of thing. I, 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 I do feel as though different strokes for different folks. Like I, I've, you know, I've, I've been sort of stuck at home since COVID started and got super into vegetable gardening and into flower gardening and then the garden design. And so, you know, every year my garden gets more elaborate and requires more work. And I have definitely, <laughs> definitely discovered the joys of, of being in one place and building and growing your life in one place. So I think, I think wandering has merit, but I think having a home and having a place you love and a place you're attached to and a place where you belong is also very important. So I don't, I, I feel like, you know, Instagram obviously values the the getting away and taking the video and like, and like being cool, whatever that means. <laughs> but there's so many interesting ways to live and to be. So. Yeah. Do you, do you feel like kind of that moving around a lot early on do you feel like that affected kind of the way that you wrote and the kind of, and not just the way that you wrote, but the content that you wrote? I think everything you're doing at the time of writing a book affects the book either consciously or subconsciously. With Winter Night Trilogy, I didn't really notice this as I was writing it, but afterwards I realized that sort of the emotional arc of the main character where she starts out um, sort of this young, young woman, she's inexperienced, she feels hemmed in by by her life and by her the expectations for her life she leaves home and the next book she's on the road she's traveling she's kind of dumb in places she's um trying to figure out who she is she makes bad decisions and in the third book she comes into herself and discovers that she can be both free and then also responsible for others and i do feel a little bit like that was in some ways the arc of my early to late 20s where i was i was confused i was searching i was traveling i was wandering and then i did discover that like i could be myself i could be stable i could be on the road i could be at home i could be who i who i was basically and i think it was subconscious right you don't you don't think consciously like cool i'm gonna do this 
this thing, it, it all comes out um, in that kind of mysterious creative process, I guess. When, when you were kind of traveling around a lot and moving frequently, did you find it difficult to kind of like, you know, make friendships and build communities and that kind of thing? Um, I was fortunate in that um, I had, you know, before when I started traveling like full on, I had already, you know, lived in Europe, lived in France, lived in Russia. Um, and so I had connections that were kind of pre-existing. Yeah. Um, I, I would go see friends that I had made. Um, I also sort of discovered like just there's so many people who are open to taking in like young travelers and backpackers. And um, one thing I'd often do would be to, um, especially after I sold my books and I could actually afford to do this, I, I would find like a really remote Airbnb in somebody's house. Like I, I met some fantastic folks in Sweden um, when I went out to their very rural like homestead and worked there for like two months one summer. And, you know, they were, they were great. They were friends. Um, so, so I do think there's definitely a, a, a be open aspect to it. And I also do enjoy being alone. I enjoy having time to think my thoughts, having time to walk around um, without an agenda to like, you know, get my get my snack whenever I wanted and eat wherever I wanted and, you know, write in my notebook without worrying about being antisocial. So I, I, I appreciated the um, I appreciated a lot about traveling. I really did. And I do. Yeah, I, I think eventually you do start being like, wow, I wish I wish I had a buddy on this train ride um, kind of stuff. Definitely that thought occurs to you, but there, there's so many pluses as well. So. Yeah, it, it's funny because I, I, I talk to my friends sometimes about this kind of concept because a couple of them travel for work mm-hmm. and and they talk about how, oh, you know, with, you know, with COVID finally kind of seeming like, you know, things are opening back up and things are changing and, and my work's expecting me to do things again. Um, you know, I'm not really looking forward to it. I got used to being at home. And and we and I'm absolutely the opposite. I'm I'm very much a like like being alone in a hotel room is one of my favorite things. Is that weird? Like those moments of quiet after a long day of travel where you're just absolutely alone and you can just you can daydream or you can just, you know, fiddle with some writing or something. I love that. My dad is that way. I no comparison. But one thing my one of my dad's favorite things is to like get a nice hotel room and just like chill. Yeah. Like that's his that's his jam. Um like maybe get a little, you know, get some overpriced like room service fries and just like you're chilling, maybe watch a movie, maybe like do some work, read a book. Like, like I totally get that. That was a childhood thing for me. Yeah. I will say that the second I get into a hotel room, I, I run away as fast as I can to go outside into the um, place that I am because I get curious about stuff. But I think it's just a personality thing. Right, right. No, I like, uh, it's weird, because I, I that's been like kind of a, a development, I feel like in my adult professional life, you know, mm-hmm. once I hit my 30s, I finally started feeling a little more adventurous. Mm-hmm. And it's like, and so yeah, like, I do enjoy going and sitting alone in a hotel room. But there early on in my career, I remember just being too skilled, like, I wasn't used to cities. I, I'd like the idea of going out and trying to explore like where I was staying just terrified me and and i feel like i'm finally gonna start changing that when i'm traveling again (laughs) it's nice do you have like i feel like getting into gardening helped me a lot with traveling because all of a sudden i had like i wanted to see public gardens i wanted to see conservatories i wanted to see like botanical gardens i also get into coffee shops i feel like having like a goal in your city is really helpful like i want to see this city's coffee shops or smoothie bars or i don't know whatever floats your boat like vegan Thai restaurants like you know you can you can get really get really granular and I think that does like help make a city seem less like there's so much here you know right 
I got a, uh, I was just responding to an email right before we started uh, about doing a trip to Spain. And, uh, and I'm like, and they're like, oh, we want you to go to here and here. And I'm, I'm looking at this. I'm like, oh man, I'm going to go to Barcelona this, like this summer. That's amazing. But then like my, that'd be amazing. My brain went, what do you do there? I don't know what to do. I don't, I haven't traveled for like two and a half years now. What am I going to do? Bro, you eat the best food in the world is what you do there. (laughs) (laughs) That's what you do. (laughs) And you take in, you wear, you wear a t-shirt because it's super hot and you walk around and you just, just eat fantastic food and check out some of the fantastic like buildings, like museums, like, oh my God, get out there. Yeah. That's exciting. I'm 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 looking forward to that. Are you are you look are you looking forward to getting back to traveling and things? Um, I'm definitely am. I've been kind of in finishing a project mode, so I kinda of gotta get through that before I can think about traveling. Um definitely I have some some summer travel hopefully on the books, which should be nice. Yeah. Also also hoping to get married this summer, which might also put a put a put a crimp in the um in the in the work travel plans, but but yeah, it's it's great to it's great to be out again. It's great that COVID feels a little bit behind us now. Right, right. I mean, it's like it's still there, like this looming spectrum specter. But man, I just it's like oh, I'm I'm gonna get another I'm gonna get a booster here soon, and then uh, you know feel a little more confident and and actually do things. Yeah, I was just in Chicago seeing a friend from college, and we went out to eat, and we went to botanical gardens and we went to museums and just had a really good weekend together and it was so nice to feel like it's just normal we're chilling it was great i uh my one of my best friends lives in chicago i love chicago it's so pretty it's i enjoyed it yeah it was my second trip there so i really really liked it It it's very flat i feel like i live in a mountainous area so the flatness struck me yeah it well, it's funny because uh, I was uh, kind of just like scrolling through your 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 Twitter and your pictures and stuff, and it's like it, it looks where you live looks very much where, like where I grew up in Northeast Ohio. But it's funny because when you say Ohio to people, everybody thinks of oh flat Midwest. They do. But sure. I grew up in like one of the few corners of Ohio that's kind of rolling and kind of oh nice. And and so you know it's just it feels more like the kind of New York Pennsylvania sort of. Mm-hmm that region than it does midwest i i've never i've only been to cleveland i think so i haven't been to that part of ohio no that's where i grew up this was outside of cleveland oh nice 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 okay yeah if you go if you go east from cleveland it gets mm-hmm. very it gets it's hilly. hilly it gets kind of the glacier carved hills and mm-hmm. you know all that kind of stuff going on it's i i loved it it's very pretty there it's funny because i live in vermont but i'm always like going to new hampshire because they have bigger rockier mountains than we do yeah um definitely like the definitely like the hilliness i um I, yeah i live in utah now so i got like i'm like i live on a mountain uh which is it's is weird as someone who grew up in in kind of the east but not the mountain east mm-hmm. oh do you do you do you ski i don't i um i i i, I i'm not like my body is not built to go fast on things like that <laughs> Um, uh, my wife wants me to, uh, she keeps like kind of hinting like every once a year, she'll be like, should we learn to ski? And I'll be like, no, that's terrifying. And she'll be like, well, maybe we should. And, and then she won't say it again for another year. I mean, you probably survive. I, I think, I think plenty of folks survive the learning process. Yeah. I, I always feel like, um, uh, is it Kronk from Emperor's New Groove? He says, I, I was, mm-hmm. the, I was in the back cause of my weak ankles. 
I, I feel like my weak, ankle, weak, weak ankles prevent me from doing a lot. It's okay. When you're skiing, you're wearing the biggest possible boots that have your ankles cranked forward anyway. So your ankles are out of the out of commission. It's mostly, I think, your knees. And your one, one, one day I'm going to end up with a friend out here that's going to insist that I go skiing with them. Just put their foot down. Right. Just foot down. Yeah. Pete, Pete Brett was actually going to do that. I, and then COVID hit. And so they didn't end up coming out. Um, but yeah, someday it's going to happen. Are you close to Park City? Um, I'm li- I literally live on the mountain that Park City is on the back of. You don't ski? And I don't ski. Yeah. Oh. No, I live within about within an hour drive of like some of the biggest resorts in the world. Oh, Brian, this is hurting my heart. I'm sorry. It's causing me pain. <laughs> so much pain. If you end up in Utah skiing, <laughs> I promise I'll at least come and drink at the lodge with you. <laughs> I feel like lodge drinking is a good alternative to skiing. Um, or cross-country skiing, which much, much lower threshold of entry, much lower price point, and much lower risk of injury. Uh, you know, I could probably be persuaded for cross-country skiing. Um, but there's nothing flat out here to cross country ski on. That's true. You're kind of like, I feel like, I feel like you're going uphill regardless. Yeah. Yeah. So, ugh. you know, but I, I don't know. I maybe I've, I've been going through a revolution with food over the last couple of years because mm-hmm. I grew up as a really picky eater and I finally decided I was going to stop doing that mm-hmm. and I was going to start trying lots of things. And, you know, maybe I'll have a revolution with skiing too. <laughs> possible. Skiing is really fun. Yeah, my mom would do some cross country skiing when I was a little kid. Um, but uh, we had a we had a big hill in our yard, and we'd always go sledding down it. Mm-hmm. And uh, I never got injured doing that. But you get to sit when you're sledding, and it's not very far. I feel like on your skis, you have more control of your descent. However, you do have those like sort of sharp sticks attached to your feet, which are are meant to control the descent. Yeah, but you're going fast in theory with sharp sticks attached to your feet. Attached to your feet, you don't have to go that fast. Yeah. Yeah, this is this is terrifying. I, it's, okay, all right. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. I I actually have a huge admiration for people that do really cool physical things like that. Um, as somebody like I mentioned already, who grew up kind of terrified of everything, like that's just so cool. I love that. I'm not that good at skiing. I just like it a lot and do it a lot. I'm 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 an intermediate, medium, yeah. good skier, but I just well, I'm super into skiing. No, that's very cool. That's very cool. Hello, Page Break listeners. Brian here to let you know that my next epic fantasy, In the Shadow of Lightning, is now up for pre-order from Tor Books. Glass Immortals is a whole new universe that introduces you to assassinations, intrigue, industrial magic, harrowing battles, heartbreaking disasters, and more for new readers and old. The book is out in the U.S. on June 21st and can be pre-ordered from Amazon, Audible, Barnes & Noble, or get a signed copy straight from my website. Remember, pre-orders matter massively to a new book, so make sure you get that done. Thank you all so much for the support. Now enjoy the rest of the podcast. Did you, have you kind of skied all over the world? Is this something that you just have basically done since you were a kid? Not at all. I grew up in Texas. Um, I learned as an adult. Oh, okay. That's not too bad. Then. Um, I learned as an adult because oh, I went to school in Vermont and then I spent when I was teaching in France, I taught in the Alps, which was really close to a big ski area. And then, and then my fiance is super intense about skiing. And um, when I moved back to Vermont, I was like, I must improve. And so I just sat down and like, just we, we live close to like five different ski areas. So I got yeah. a pass and just committed to like, you know, the four days a week, like in the mornings, the mountain, like just putting in runs. Um, 
and got super into it myself. I guess I'm pretty good now, actually, given given the thoughts. It's been four or five years since I started like really work at it. So it's a kind of a hobby now. Yeah. And and Evan and I do enjoy traveling to ski. We've been skiing in New Hampshire and Quebec. Um, and I think we'd love to go further afield against COVID. I skied in Utah one time when I was there for an event. I skied in um I skied at Sundance in Provo. Uh, yeah, I love Sundance. It's so pretty. It's about a mm-hmm. It was super pretty. It's about 25 minutes through the mountains from where I live. It's such a nice mountain, too. It'd be so good to learn in. It's chill. Yeah, I, I should. I really should. Okay, I'm going to stop. I'm going to I'll, 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 I, I think just it's just like find you a nice, nice instructor. Get on like little tiny little flat bunny hill. Like don't rush yourself. I feel like it'd be fun. I feel like I feel like it'd be fun. It might. I'm going to stop now. No, that could be really cool. I'm going to stop. This is. I'm being I'm being that person. That's I'm being that person. That's all right. If if you ever end up out here and you get me to go drink at the lodge, you and my wife can gang up on me. And I'll, <laughs> I'll end up spending two grand on skis and random shit. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, you can you can also rent skis for a season. Oh, that's probably smarter. <laughs> Right. Yeah, I think you should rent skis for a season or two just to make sure you're like actually into it before you drop the money on like the skis, the boots, the poles, the helmet, the pants. It's it's quite an, it's 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 a it's a thing. Yeah. Well, I, I getting geared up for sure. I've always had that weird thing where I like I'll go if I decide I'm going to get into a hobby, I just go all in. Like it's it's that's not a good way to do things. I mean, I feel like if you're convinced the hobby will last out for you. Yeah. But or if it's got a low overhead, but if it's like a high overhead hobby that you're not sure about, like renting is great. Yeah, that's that's probably a lot smarter than just you know going all in. We we bought a we bought a kayak last uh, spring, yeah, and then we ended up with these uh, horrible. Uh, we went we went out once on the kayak, and then we end up with these horrible uh, uh, wildfires going all summer, and just the valleys were full of smoke. No. And and you just kept every morning it would be like look at the th- look at the weather and it would say don't do outdoor activities today. That's so frustrating. Oh my goodness. Um, we have a canoe. Um, we have a canoe instead of a kayak. Um, mostly so we can take our dog. Yeah. Um, with us, he's a very passionate canoeist, canoeer, canoe accompanist. So we canoe for him that's moose right moose. Yes, Brian. This is for Brian's table. You asked particularly to hear about moose. Yes. <laughs> um moose is our he's a he's a hound mix um he is he is a very good adventure dog mm-hmm. um goes he's definitely a, a com- he accompanies us on skis and hikes and runs um he's he's all about it um but in the summer he loves to swim like a lot and so um we go canoeing he just kind of paddles alongside the boat um or if or if he gets over it he'll just like come over and like put his front paws on the gunnel and like sort of ask us to drag him into the boat and his life jacket has a handle, which is nice. Um, so you can pull him in. He hasn't swamped us yet. He's 65 pounds, but it's a big canoe, fortunately. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, the, the the not swamping is always the key with canoeing, right? I, uh... Canoe. Well, again, we got a big canoe so we could get our dog in and out of it. Um, but he's he's all about it. He'll like jump in, jump out again, swim in circles. Like, like it's his absolute favorite thing to do. It's fun to watch. We got one of those. Uh, we got one of those massive tandem kayaks with the hope oh, nice. that we would take our dog with us. Yeah, yeah. It's got a nice big perch on. Got it. the space. But, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but uh, but like I said, we we didn't really get a chance to try it yet. I hope it's better this summer. I hope there's less fires. I really do. Oh, uh, me too. Me too. I got to get out of the house. Like like I'm like yeah. looking out the window and it's like kind of nice out and I'm like, ooh, should I work in the yard today? It doesn't matter that there's snow on the ground. It's all right. 
Wait, it's nice out. It's like one degree here. Uh, yeah, it's about, I think it's about 10 or 15 degrees out. Okay. But that's not too cold to like trim the raspberries, right? <laughs> no, it's, it is. It, they're still, it, really? This early? Yeah, about the end of February, uh, middle of March to the middle of March is when you want to trim raspberries. Okay, maybe, I mean. It's those canes. I mean, ours are still under snow, so it's a little challenging. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I probably should leave it another couple of weeks. But, you know, sometimes you just get that feel of that itch. And then you give into that itch and get bundled up and go out in the yard and you immediately regret it. So I should go skiing. It's more some more fun activity in the colds than trimming raspberries, like objectively. Uh, I, yeah. Okay. I, I'll give you that. Yeah. No, no, that's, uh, that's very fun. Um, do you, uh, I, I like those kind of like, it, it feels like your hobbies tend to be these ones that are very kind of contemplative. Is that, is that on purpose or do you think that's on accident? Oh, mostly accident i guess i what am i i I like to garden um i like to ski um i like to hike i I guess part of it's just where i live like you know if i was if i was super into i don't know indoor rock climbing i'd be out of luck because there's just not room for that there's not a place for it nearby yeah so I, i feel like it's a bit of a function of living in vermont um and also like I don't know. My partner and I both enjoy both enjoy um, sort of like big mountain hikes. And so we do a lot of time in New Hampshire in the summer, like going up and down things. Um, and we have a we have a goal this summer of hiking Vermont's entire long trail, which is um, it's a 200 mile trail that kind of bisects Ooh. the state. And we're going to try to do it like in sections over the summer. So we have all kind of, kind of those things going on, um, which is it's fun. It's fun to have things take you outside. I do think being an author, you're very stationary sometimes, like you're in your chair or in your at your desk, like doing your thing. And it's nice to have hobbies that take you out into the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that's a really good idea. I definitely like the first probably five years of my career, it felt like I just was glued to my seat constantly. Yeah. And I like, I put on like 45 pounds and I, you know, you're working so hard. Yeah. Right. It's just, you know, it just, you, you end up just so sedentary. Mm-hmm. I, I really, I, I'm trying to break out of that, but COVID is not helping. COVID makes it harder for sure. Although hopefully it's ending soon. Yeah. Yeah. That's the hope. Yeah. Um, so we'll, uh, so let, let's, we'll, we'll touch very briefly on this, but um, we are about four days into Russia invading Ukraine, which yeah. is horrifying. Uh, yeah. but, but you write Russian fantasy, um, and you lived in Moscow. Um, I, like this, this has got to like, obviously neither of us are pundits. Neither of us are going to try to talk about this. This episode won't even go out for you know six weeks probably. And so we have no idea what's going to happen, but I've got to imagine you have some feelings about this. I mean, I think I share a lot of the world's feelings and that I find it horrifying. I didn't think that it would happen. I thought it was, it was kind of, a, I thought it was a bluff. I think a lot of people did. And then, you know, the, the guns started in the tanks. I was, I was shocked and, and appalled, I think, as much of the world was um, and still is. I, you know, I think you can get even, you could, I'm sure people much smarter than I am have spent a lot of time like talking about the various routes, historical, modern day, Soviet, emotional, you know, all these different routes of the conflict. And, I, you know, there's obviously plenty of people willing to, to, um, hold forth at length about it but i think it's it's a human tragedy it's it's tragic and i think it will yeah it will change you know how europe sees itself how we see russia how we see europe and and yeah it's an inflection point i think for sure globally and i think i share in everyone's uncertainty right now and i'm very sad yeah 
Right. No, it's it's absolutely horrifying. Um, do you, now your your own kind of historical fantasy in Russia is set around thirteen the thirteen hundreds. Is that right? Yeah, the thirteen hundreds. Yeah, fourteenth century, kind of in around Moscow. I, I every time I kind of look into that kind of period of history, it's in that part of the world. It always strikes me as both very familiar, but also kind of alien because it is like it's so northern it's so like frozen and and there's there's a lot of you know like we talk about like uh you know like like a the grand prince of moscow but it's like uh but it's it still feels very tribal at that period of time and i i find it absolutely fascinating i mean i think that was one reason i chose to set my books in the 14th century is because i had never read a novel set in that region that took place before, at least before Ivan the Terrible for sure, possibly before Peter the Great. Like I think, I think medieval Muscovy, like you know, pre pre Ivan the Terrible, Muscovy was was a was a time and a place that I had never read about in a novel. Mm-hmm. And since I knew I wanted to do historical fantasy, I felt like this kind of like under under known and under documented time period would be a great place to like slip in the fantasy elements that I wanted. Um, because, you know, people don't know, like you have like big historical facts, but there's a lot of like blank spaces you can fill in as an author with your own imagination. Um, and I also felt like it was a fascinating moment when when you had this, this oh man, we're going to wander into politics again. You had this sort of like Slavic civilization that came out of Kiev, which is in modern day Ukraine, um, that spread out these various city states, including Moscow. Um, over the course of a few hundred years. But at this moment in history, when these books are set, Moscow is becoming kind of the chief of these city-states and is soon to kind of take the lead as the capital of what would become a Russian nation-state. So it's, it's kind of a historical inflection point in, in, in my books that I'm, that I'm writing about, yeah. um, along with questions of, of, of religion and gender and you know, personal responsibility and family. And there's a lot of, a lot of personal things too um, in the novels as well. Yeah. For sure, and it's it's interesting that you talked about like the blank like the blank spaces that you can fill in because that that is like that feels like it almost describes that period of Russia to me so well because it is it's like it just endless tracks of kind of forest and it, I mean you're not even getting up to Siberia and the really distant places but it, even in kind of even in that area it feels like a very uh it's an empty land that you know has a lot of space for imagination and a lot of uh mystery i mean it was definitely an impression i wanted to create like it's it you know people had been there for hundreds if not thousands of years and and had a had a you know you know they were orthodox christian they also maintained their pagan roots um People lived in like, you know, obviously very tight knit villages. It was a dangerous time and place where you're in danger from the weather, from other people. Um, and I, I I feel like it was an interesting moment to kind of explore dangers, both sort of supernatural and historical. Yeah. But it's obviously fascinating and, and kind of this beautiful, beautiful, dark place that I felt um, deserved a book for sure. Yeah. No, that that's very cool. I know that... Um, I know uh, Brad Bullier has done Russian influenced mm-hmm. uh, kind of fantasy, but I, off the top of my head, I can't think of anybody else who's done historical Russian fantasy. I mean, my earliest drafts, I wasn't sure if I wanted to do historical or more of like a sort of Russian influenced fantasy land. I did feel very early on that I wanted history to ground the fantasy and give it a little bit more realism. 
I also felt like sort of cherry picking um, Russian sort of Western recognized Russian tropes um, was not for me. It felt too simplistic and it felt, I mean, maybe slightly offensive in a way just to be like, Mm -hmm. I'm going to play the greatest hits. There's going to be an onion dome and a tsar and a troika and I don't know, some vodka. Um, I felt, I felt, you know, I'd lived in Russia for almost two years and I felt like I wanted to do something more, more nuanced. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do you, do you feel like you'll return to that in future books? I have no plans to, um, I do have an idea for another novel that would be set during Soviet Russia. Mm. Um, but it'd be historical fiction. Um, and there's no, I have, I have my, my newest book that'll be out this year is one of my kids books, which are set in the U S totally different. Um, and then the next adult book I have coming is set during the first world war, um, on the Western front. So it's, um, obviously very different and, um, I wouldn't rule it out going back to Russia or medieval Russia, but I, I have been wanting to try new things as well. Well, that's, that's really cool. Do you, do you find yourself, um, I mean, it seems like you, you kind of skip around a bit in terms of content, whereas authors are, are often, uh, especially, I mean, I feel like I have been discouraged from skipping around in what I write because I came out as powder mage, epic fantasy guy. Um, and that's what I should stick with. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like you've got, had that pressure? Um, to be honest, no, I, I've never felt really pressured to, to write a certain thing. Um, with my kids books, it was a bit of an accident. I had finished my second adult book. Um, and I had this idea for, for like a, sort of a scary middle grade story. Um, and I wrote it, I wrote it on spec. I just wrote the whole thing. Um, and it, you know, it found a publisher and then did well. And so it became a series and that just, it kind of worked out. So it was a bit like, well, here it is, take it or not. Um, which I think can help. Like if you want to write a new thing, just like write the new thing, I think was, was a way that worked for me. But obviously kids books, you know, they, they're, they're quicker to write than epic fantasy just from a sheer length, length perspective. Um, mine are between 35 and 45,000 words, you know, so um, basically like novella length for an adult book. How long does it take you to write one um, of those? It takes the drafting is always is always usually fairly quick, um, but I, I tend to be a very intensive editor with a lot of like you know take out whole sections and and do them again kind of thing. So um, they've been coming out once a year, yeah, which is about about right. Um, and then for the World War One book, I, um, I I had an idea and I pitched it, and my editor was was into it. Um, and it is historical fantasy in the sense that like it has you know, there's, there's a ton of history, but then like sort of this edge of like, it's more magical realism, like something a little bit sort of, sort of fantastical about it as well. So maybe it is my wheelhouse and I just haven't have <laughs> changed era, stayed in the wheelhouse is a possibility as well. Yeah. Do you, do you find you enjoy writing in these historical kind of situations for the way, like you mentioned, like the way it grounds you? I, I love history. I love historical fiction a lot. Um, I also love the idea of the fantastical elements, like commenting and enlarging upon the historical ones. Mm-hmm. I find that really interesting, and I find it interesting how how our fantasy, how how our like how humans like thoughts, dreams, goals can influence their history. And so, so I guess I guess yes, historical fantasy is this very kind of niche genre that I do feel like is, is super interesting. Um, and done done well, the history and the fantasy can really enhance each other. You can also, it can also be silly. Like I think a good example is like, is like Wonder Woman, the first movie set during the first world war, which is a movie that really bugged me for it's, you know, very like, like here's the Western front. Here's this lady in a bustier and she's going to fix the Western front with her cleavage. I don't know. I I was, I was very annoyed by this. this, Sorry world. I know everyone liked it. Um, So, so I think it can be on badly too, is what I'm trying to say. (laughs) Yeah. 
That's interesting. I, I always kind of run into whenever I've tried to fiddle with um, kind of historical stuff, I've always run into that sort of, okay, mm-hmm. if I'm going to do a historical something, like where do I fudge the facts, right? And mm-hmm. that bothers me so much that I just have never gotten very far into projects like that. I was talking to Peter Brad about this. He's like, but you can just make stuff up, but the history. And I was like, but you gotta, gotta go with the facts. And he was like, but you could just make it up too. And it's an internal debate, I think, with fantasy, with fantasy writers. Where do you make it up? Or do you all make it all up? Which is a great, a great possibility as well. Yeah. What where do you feel like you draw the line? I mean, I like to fit my work in between like large historical events so i think if you're i think you're moving into speculative fiction a little more if you're saying like what if what if what if nelson lost trafalgar you know that's kind of a different then you start alternative timeline is a very different um animal from saying like well okay we have these large sort of historical moments what if Mm -hmm. what if this was also happening say different vibe yeah So I was thinking about um, what you alluded to with uh, kind of the uh, Wonder Woman thing. And there there seems like there is a certain aspect of like historical fiction, historical fantasy sort of stuff that is almost like, I, I don't even know what to call it, like fix the world porn, you know, like, yep. like, uh, like Quentin Tarantino specializes in this, yep. right? Yep, with definitely you know inglorious bastards and uh you know things like that i don't know what do you think about that as somebody who writes historical fiction i mean i think like that's so it's the fantasy part right like the fantasy can comment intelligently on the history and i feel like a film like inglorious bastards in some ways does mm-hmm. um because it it kind of like it it, it comments on in in a very very darkly humorous way on you know, the horrors of World War II and the Holocaust. Um, I think it's a more serious-minded effort than, say, Wonder Woman, which is very much, like, just uses history as, like, window dressing for its story of this one woman's, like, whatever she's doing. You know, and I do think it's the difference between good historical fantasy and maybe slightly less good is that I think good historical fantasy in- engages with its history and it is trying to enlarge our understanding of it or comment on it or speak to it in some way. And I think when it's less good, I, th- I think what it does is just it says like, oh, I have a pretty backdrop. I have my backdrop is X, you know, and, and I'm going to set my story in front of this backdrop like it's a scene, you know, without any any real interaction with it. And um, you see both for sure. Yeah. 
do you do you think that that's just kind of a uh an artifact of pop culture you know kind of when it's done badly um do you think it's laziness i think all stories have their own have their own have their own right to exist you know like you know i didn't love wonder woman many people adored it you know and Mm -hmm. and and both those opinions are fully valid you know i might be annoyed by sort of simplistic stories set in front of like historically complex backdrops but other people adore those same things like i don't feel like it's fair to judge what people consume for pleasure at all yeah for me personally i have what, what i like and don't like and what i think is good and not good and those are absolutely personal judgments that i make to 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 myself when i'm mm-hmm. consuming you know films tv books and like when it's good it's very very good historical fiction or historical fantasy like for example um one of the best things i watched in all of all of the last two years was was chernobyl um the hbo miniseries based on the chernobyl disaster it was absolutely fantastic um and they had elements they just flat made up they had to you know because pure historical fidelity often does not produce the drama you want in kind of the compressed time frame of a story but the choices they made sort of got at the heart of, of the frictions and the and the and the and the terrors that like sort of haunted that moment in time and it was amazing so i i've i've talked with uh, other epic fantasy writers about kind of the struggle that sometimes you run into mm-hmm. when writing these massive stories that have huge political plot lines and you know mm-hmm. big armies moving around and how you almost you have to condense you have to condense timelines for one like you absolutely. mentioned absolutely. Uh, because because you have to keep pacing up right mm-hmm. this is an entertaining story mm-hmm. but also like you have to condense events and characters like like if if i if if my next book was written true to history it would have several thousand characters that are all very deeply involved in the political machinations and the military machinations and all these things going on and and the fact is is that you have what you know like even for a big epic fantasy you often have maybe a dozen two dozen main characters and then you know like a like a hundred maybe 200 kind of named characters that you know exist more on the periphery and you don't go beyond that because it just gets confusing. I mean, that's already like, that's already bold. Like that's a lot of main characters. <laughs> I've never juggled that many and I really salute you for doing so. Um, but that's like, that's like the act, art of storytelling, right? It's deciding what's important and going for it um, with as little, as little that's extraneous as you can get away with, you know? And I think, I think all, all historical fiction is an act of editorial. And I think in some ways all history is an act of edit- editing, you know, like we're choosing what's important. And when you're historical fiction or even historical fantasy, you're deciding which pieces of history are important to you. And it's an interesting process, which I think says more about the writer than it does about the history. I uh, I remember getting really into the movie Tombstone when I was kind of in my late teens. I have a soft spot for Westerns, for sure. Well, I, yeah, me too. It's But I remember like getting really into it and then reading on the internet what people thought of it and stuff. And I remember coming across oh, yeah. like a bunch of articles that were like from relatives of the descendants of the like the bad guys in the movie and talking about how oh, the, the, this person was misrepresented and they, they get very angry. And I... And it, it made me think about kind of that, like, there is a point at which you get so close to kind of modern day that if you're trying to do something that's truly historical with real named people, you're going to run into people that maybe even knew them. And that's crazy. It's true. 
It's true. But at the same time, though, like, like that's why fiction is exists. Like, you have the right to editorialize. Like, you can't slander anyone, obviously. But, I mean, if someone, you know, died at Tombstone 100 years ago, they're, they're kind of open season for historical interpretations. And that's just kind of the reality. And I think, yeah, that the, I, it's, it's a weird balance between, like, where, where, where do you put your history? Where do you put your fantasy? Where do you put your, 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 your own self as a writer? It's kind of like ongoing tension, right? As, as a storyteller. Do you, do you find yourself thinking about that a lot or do you just try to kind of act on instinct? I did more with my World War One novel. It's pretty much done now. So I thought a lot about that because like World War One is a very well documented time period. Like if you want an answer to a question, you, you can find it, you know, everyone, it was, it was a time period when it was just before mass communication, just before radio. Um, so kind of literateness had reached this pinnacle because it was how people entertain themselves. And so everyone involved in that war, it felt like wrote a memoir or wrote notes or wrote a diary. Like, and there were so many letters and there was so much just talking. Everyone was talking. Like it, it's, it's a war that just has so many eyewitnesses that wrote about it. Um, at the same time, the things they left out are, are very obvious, very glaring a lot of the time too. So it's just, it, it's it's almost a noisy time period that it's hard to find space for yourself as an, as a creative person to, to slip your own ideas in. Cause you're, it's so easy to say like, Oh, that couldn't have happened. Um, Cause you know, it couldn't, couldn't have happened because you've, you've read so much about it. So whereas the winter night trilogy was, was written about medieval Russia, which is just poorly documented. Like there's so much space in the record for you to invent your own stuff. That that's interesting. The way you talked about that moment at which, literacy was at a height before we had instant communication it was wild i've never i've never thought about that before and that is crazy fascinating oh it was amazing we think about it like like mass mass entertainment was books magazines having like little poetry slams like that's how plays like all this stuff was how was like the netflix of 1914 you know there just wasn't mass entertainment that didn't involve the written word um and so people were super literate Everyone's literate, you know. Again, the number of, of of memoirs written by all kinds of people in this conflict is incredible. Yeah, that's that is wild. My mom's a genealogist, and mm-hmm. uh, and and my sister is as well. And it's it's always interesting. It's one of those things. Like as a kid, I always found it really annoying because I'm like, they're dead people. Why would I care about dead people? Yeah, you know, like even relatives and things. Like, oh, they're dead people that share my name. Awesome. Uh, but like, I think as an adult, I become I've become I, I've I've kind of grown to be a little bit more interested in that idea of you know where do people come from? How do you discover? Uh, how do you discover what? you know, your great grandfather was like, just by reading, you know, some letters that he wrote, things like that. I love how history comes to life when you hear someone like someone who's who's passed away, like you, you're reading their words, like someone, something they thought about and wrote, like it feels like their mind's touching yours. I love like historical diaries and memoirs and stuff. I, I, I just, it feels like almost like time travel in a way. Like, I don't know. It's something I really enjoy. Yeah. Do you, I, I mean, I, I got to assume you do tons of research for the kind of books that you write. I do. I do read a lot. Um, I, I read a lot and I, I I take notes. I have flashcards and all kinds of like ways of like sort of incorporating. But the thing about about his, historical fiction is I feel like your research should should not weigh heavily on the manuscript. So what ends up happening is you, you research, you write a ton of like extraneous like sort of paragraphs on like whatever. And then they all get cut out by the end, you know, because at the end of the day, the, the history is secondary to the story you're telling. And, and nobody wants your like three page explanation of like whatever, you know, of like 
you know, the 1918 spring offensive or, or the flu pandemic or whatever's going on, you know? It's interesting that you mentioned that you, that you write little snippets of those things. Um, Do you think that's kind of the way that you kind of, that you help create your own voice for a world? Not necessarily. I just love interesting facts. Um, I feel like the voice grows in the writing a little bit. Um, definitely with my kids' books, I the voice changes quite radically because obviously you're writing to a different audience. You're, you're writing a different level. You're trying to you know use different constructions and like different vocabulary. Um, for the Winter Night trilogy, I ended up with this kind of like very sort of fairy tale, like kind of sort of third person, a little bit almost abstract kind of kind of language. Um, and honestly, one of my struggles with the newer book was that I, I would I would slide back into that and I would lose kind of a slightly more earthy, more modern um, voice that sort of that book needed to have. So I think I think voice is a challenge, and I think there's no I think I think for me a lot of voice comes in like sort of massaging the sentences and getting them right. Yeah, getting getting that kind of uh, mm-hmm. feeling. I always have kind of felt like I don't do that after a first book. Okay, and in the series that I'm we're currently working on mm-hmm. i uh i am doing that in the second book and it's a very strange experience for me like i i kind of trying to like the, the i feel like i i still am exploring this world to a mm-hmm. depth that needs to be constantly like you said constantly massaged and and learned mm-hmm. as i go along mm-hmm. i find that do you find that figurative language is a really important like way into like voice because I, I one thing that helped me writing winter night was i i, I went through all my nouns, all my verbs, and all my metaphors looking for anachronisms. Like, like even things you don't think about. Like, you can't feel a jolt in medieval Russia. There's no electricity. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't be taken aback in medieval Russia. There's no, there's no sailing ships, you know. So all these, all these, all these, all this, this like, sort of like massive language that has been built over so much time. What I try to do is strip it back and find metaphors and find words that don't relate to modern terms. And it was helpful and challenging. That sounds very challenging. I've, I've never like really actively tried to do that. You know, like if I, if I notice something, mm-hmm. if I'm writing, you know, like a, if I notice something and, and I'm like, oh, well, that's like, that's literally referring to going to the movies or something like yeah. that. I'll, yeah, I'll try to I'll try to mm-hmm. make sure I'm pulling that out, but I guess I don't put a ton of work into that. Uh, maybe I should. I mean, I, everyone's different. I feel like this is the fun thing about talking to writers is like what works for writer A is like absolutely not good for writer B and so forth. It just it's such a fascinating process because we end up with the same like thing, a book, but the cookie is baked in a million different ways and that's such a cool thing yeah so. no it really is yeah um do, do you like baking i i like to bake um our neighbor is a pastry chef and she <sighs> brings she brings the fruits of her labor of her experimentation to our home on a far too regular basis <laughs> um so i haven't ba- I, I like to bake pies quite a bit i, I I'm, I'm a vegan and so I, I got into this thing where i wanted to make like, the perfect vegan pie crust it's a bit challenging to do a good vegan pie crust if you're not using Crisco, yeah, which works well, but it's a fairly, fairly bad for you substance. So I worked a lot with like vegan shortenings or um, coconut oil to like get kind of the flakiness that you, you get in a regular pie crust. Now Moose is dropping his bone on the metal leg of my desk over and over again for unknown reasons. He's he's just trying to participate in the podcast. That's what he's doing. You know, maybe we'll, we could credit him in the byline. <laughs> clanging from moose i i grew up in uh right on the edge of amish country in ohio Mm -hmm. and i pies are just 
I love a good pie. We grow a bunch of rhubarb and the spring is very much about like, we have, we have golden raspberries and strawberries too. So the spring is very much like, I got to make these pies. Super delicious. I tried to do rhubarb when I moved to Utah six years ago and Mm -hmm. I, I succeeded for one summer and then they just all died and wouldn't come back. And that made me very sad. But yeah, the, the the high desert is not a good place for rhubarb. Maybe it's too dry. Yeah, they it's like too, they do like the moisture. Too dry, too hot, and in, in the height of summer. Possibly, possibly, it must be. Yeah, you need that hum humidity. Must be hard gardening there. We have a short growing season, but fairly temperate while it's going. Yeah, that's how Ohio was. Is kind of you just uh, you know when you're growing stuff, it grows so well and so quickly, and uh, in in Utah, it's. I've struggled. I, I built these like really nice, uh, uh, big kind of uh, garden beds out front in the full sun. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I got really nice like hardwood for them and everything. And everything I put in them died. Just too hot. And finally last. Yeah, it's just way too hot. Even if watering every day just wouldn't keep them cool enough and damp enough. Even like peppers and tomatoes and like some of the more like hot weather. Yeah. That's frustrating. Yeah, I had to move. I, I successfully did peppers and tomatoes on the back patio where it's a little shaded. Oh, interesting. Uh, last summer. And uh, and I just planted a whole bunch of lavender in those front beds. Oh, nice. So that works out. That stuff's great. Yeah, my wife loves lavender. So mm-hmm. it's 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 like, okay, this is not going to be practical. It'll be decorative now. It's. I mean, when lavender goes off and it's all purple, it's beautiful, isn't it? Oh, it's so pretty. And it smells yeah. so good. Like if you have, you know, like if you've got you know, 15, 20 lavender little bushes, even the small ones, the whole area just smells amazing. I wonder if like Mediterranean plants would go like gardenias or um, even citrus, like things that like kind of the, the dry soil, sudden hard rains, hot kind of combo yeah maybe i should really i should start doing uh, i should start like a little like a little orange tree or something that i bring in during the winter just start it in one of those massive pots you could do an avocado in a pot it would go in it would go inside well too um or a fig like doesn't mind being potted a fig would be fun figs are great you really want to if you want them to fruit well Mm -hmm. because they can cross pollinate but um like if you get a, a young plant in like a 20 gallon pot and just like if it just goes in the garage for the winter, it's, it needs like a little bit of a dormancy. So it needs to be like coldish. Yeah. You're going to get me ranting so hard about gardens now. No, no, I, I love it. <laughs> Careful what you wish for. <laughs> um, I love figs. Um, you would need two, two pots probably for, for good fruit. And they need, they need a year or two to establish before they really, really take off. But um, they wouldn't mind being in pots in the summer outside. And then just like if you had like a sheltered place for them, like a garage in the winter. They would do. I mean, will they in in a dormancy? Will they need light? They don't need light at all. They can be. They can be. They're they're done. They just they just need to be cold. Otherwise, they'll come out of dormancy. Yeah. Um. So and and they need to go dormant in order to fruit. And so you'd want like again like a a coolish but not like negative not like our negative tens. You know. Right. In the winter, there's a breed called the Chicago chicago fig i think it's called which is very cold tolerant it's not quite like the negative 30 kind of thing that you need in vermont to be outside all the time um but it'll take like you know teens reliably no, too bad i've I, we, our house faces south and i've debated trying like um like an s valiard fig tree on a south facing wall like to see if it would survive like right against the house you know with the south facing sun yeah but it'd be a bit of a gamble it'd be pretty borderline so i i always i get I get into these like habits and then uh, like hobbies and, and I'll be like, Oh, okay. I'll, I'll plant a tree. And then I just 
I like I'll something will distract me for two months and then my tree's dead. Mm-hmm. And definitely young trees need a metric fuck ton of water. Like like you're talking like gallons a day. They need yeah. You know, tens of gallons, you know, so much water for them to establish. Once they're established, they are immortal unless they really, really have a bad time. Um, but young trees need so much effort their first year to stay alive. I um I've I've done honeybees before and I still have Ooh, that sounds cool. I've never tried beekeeping. It's it's really fun. Honestly, it was my it was my um uh hobby that I I put some money into when I just when I sold my first series. Nice. And I was like, okay, I, I'm gonna do beekeeping. And I mm-hmm. yeah, and and I've got I think I've done five years. Very cool. And then two Two winters ago, my hives died, oh. and and then like I just had and the COVID hit, and I was yeah yeah all that stuff you know depressed and didn't mm-hmm. want to deal with anything extra and haven't yeah, of course haven't restarted them and I'm I'm like I'm at that point right now literally right now where I've got to decide whether I'm going to order new bees for the spring or not. That sounds lovely, actually. That sounds lovely. Oh. It's a really cool hobby. I highly recommend it. It's mm-hmm. it's it, it takes a little bit of upfront, you know, reading, and it takes a little bit of upfront money. Mm-hmm. But once you're established, and and if you really get into it, it kind of it's self perpetuating, and it's it's quite enjoyable. Yeah, that sounds that sounds amazing. I love we have <laughs> we have a lot of bumblebees that come through in the summer, and I love just sitting and watching the bumblebees like go from flower to flower. It's a it's definitely a wonderful wonderful thing. Bees. I've thought about putting in a bat house. A bat house? Yeah, you can put in a bat house. It's a little bit of a pain. They need a really tall pole. That's cool. Mm-hmm. But bats need homes too, and they're really good for a lot of things. Well, they're good with insects, right? They keep it keep down the They they keep your insect low down, which is nice. Um they need a super tall pole and need their their house needs to be a very dark color, like black or dark blue, so they can generate heat inside when it's cold. Yeah. But you can you can build or buy a bat house and put up thing so you just literally put it up and hope somebody moves in you need so it helps if you're close to a water source of some Mm -hmm. kind um and you need to be at least like 20 meters from a tree because that's where owls live and bats don't like being close to owls i've seen thing people that put them like against like like attach them to their house against their attic but the problem is the the guano like you end up having like streaks down your house i think is not cool um so i think better like away from your house personally and the other kind of drawback is they want like to be like, you know, 15, 20 feet up. So it's definitely taller than a birdhouse. Yeah. Um, but they, they apparently they, they if you have a good bad house that's well sighted, you will get, you will get a colony. Um, almost that's certainly. Cool. So that's kind of cool, right? Yeah. That is super cool, actually. Yeah. Um, like and of that. course they attract the owls because the owls want to eat the bats. And so you end up with like more of an ecosystem and you're building, you know, this, this space near your house. It's kind of cool. We do have a little, uh, a little owl that I see, uh, once in a while, I think that lives in one of the pine trees in the yard. Mm-hmm. I love it. Um, I, I can, I actually looked at one point, I could not figure out what kind he was because he didn't match with any of mm-hmm. the, uh, the Utah kind of indigenous owls. Interesting. But I, I discovered him opening my front door uh, about two winters ago. I opened my front door and my wife had left the wreath on through the middle of January. Uh-huh. And I opened this door and there's this little tiny owl that's got to be no more than six or eight inches tall. And he's right next to my face. And I looked over and he looked at me and then he kind of gave like a little screech and then flew away. And I kind of flipped out. <laughs> 
That's amazing. You could get, make an owl box for him. You can do owl boxes too, like an owl box nest. An owl box would be fun. Owl box can be on a tree. They like being on trees. This needs to be big enough for them to nest in. Yeah, that would be quite cool. I've never tried doing little like bird bird. There will be habitat nests and things like that. Yeah, habitat. There's plans online. There's like if you you know they can like put one together yourself for obviously you can buy them too. I'm sure. Um, yeah. That'd be cool, like a little spot for your, for your little buddy. Yeah, I know he's still around. I haven't seen him for a while, but I know he's still around because I found a, a an owl pellet about two months ago um, in my raspberries. Nice, nice. Uh, but uh, I love raspberries so much. I'm so excited. Raspberries are the best. I, 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 I've got this amazing little patch that has like the perfect amount of like mix of sun and and heat and uh, but like cool and sometimes in the summer. And I was going, I was getting about three and a half pounds every two days for a few weeks last summer. I love it. That's amazing. So good. So great. I have a thing at 2.30, so we should at least- We can wrap up. We can totally wrap up. We should wrap up soonish. We should wrap up soonish. So I I like to wrap up these conversations every time uh, by asking everybody, uh, what is the last thing you ate that blew your mind? The last thing I ate that blew my mind. Oh, I went to a restaurant in Chicago with my friend who I went and saw last weekend. I um, went to this Mediterranean restaurant and they had this uh, cauliflower kebab. They grilled the cauliflower and they also grilled dates like in between the cauliflower and the grilled dates were insanely good. I've never had grilled dates before. Me either. But they, they like the slight char with like the sweetness. It, it was super tasty. And I want to do it this summer because it was absolutely delicious and i had never expected something to be so good so did, did they put anything on them i think they'd been marinated in something i meant to ask okay. the, the server but then like we didn't have to didn't but I'm, I'm gonna figure it out because it was super good yeah i've got a thing of dates in my cupboard i could totally grill some dates that sounds delightful they were delicious they were okay, it got, they, they like softened that. a bit with the heat and just got really just this, this little bit of edge to the sweetness and it was so good oh, i was really man. impressed i'd never yeah. considered grilling a date and it was great well i'm i'm I'll totally going to grill dates now. That's I'm going to try it too. I'm going to try it too. <laughs> Very cool. It was so nice to meet you, Brian. That was author Catherine Arden. Thanks so much, Catherine, for taking the time to chat. You can find links to Catherine's website and social media down in the show notes. You can find me, as always, at brianmcclellan.com. Special thanks to James Sutter for music and Tom Bishop for production. If you'd like to support the podcast, head on over to patreon.com slash pagebreak or buy my books in ebook, paperback, or audio. Don't forget that my next epic fantasy, In the Shadow of Lightning, is now up for pre-order. You can also get signed copies of my books direct from my website or swag from my Redbubble store. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a review. Huge thanks to Kyle Anderson, Patrick Hunt, Elijah, and Jennifer and Angela Johnson for their backing on Patreon. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.